Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle. First up, we've got this new thing, COVID. Second up, we've got another new thing, COVID. And third up, we've got COVID. We might throw in a little light banter about social isolation, and we might venture even further and talk about the impact of COVID on the economy. Yeah, you get my gist. Gist. It feels like all we're talking about at the moment is COVID. And I guess that's fair enough. We're all scared to varying degrees for our health, our families, our communities and our livelihoods. We debated long and hard about whether to have a COVID-free show for some relief, but decided it's probably not the time yet. So on this show, we're going to talk a bit about what's happening in the hospitals and what's happening with kids with respect to COVID. We've also got a great guest. Michael Schaefer is a lawyer turned comedian who had a sellout show at the Comedy Festival last year called 5050 and who was to return with the new show this year called Getting Better. We've hijacked him to talk about comedy in the face of illness and fear. Joining me in the studio this morning is Cyber Sue, our nurse in a major Melbourne hospital, and the panel beater, our trusty expert on all things health. In a little while, we're also bringing Dr Spock on the telephonic device because, of course, we're social distancing and we're all very spread out. He's a paediatrician and infectious diseases expert, as you no doubt know, and he will join us to talk a little bit about the uh, kids' side of things. So let's get this show on the road, starting with the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. G'day, Cyber Sue, how are you? Good morning. Actually, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. Tell us why. You know, we work in health and I know there's a lot of talk about um, the risks inherent in health, but, you know, I feel grateful. We've got a job and um, we're employed, we have job security. And um, a lot of my friends and co- friends, they don't have that. Um, even the people that aren't in these unemployment numbers they um you know it's very precarious times if you're in the arts if you're in interior design video all sorts of things so i'm feeling good i want to come back to that yeah. in one second but before we do let's say good day to panel beta how are you mate top of the morning to you do little cyber sue great to see you in yeah. in person Yay. No less. It feels sort of weird being in the same room as other people. Oh, it, it does. does. It, it does. It does. It's Stay been, away. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know why I wanted to take a, put a pin in that comment you just made, um, Sue, is because I've had this conflicting emotion going on mm. for for the last month now, as we're you know because I'm in a big hospital too, and we're preparing wildly. And, and on the one hand, it's been you know it's been scary. I've been you know we're all really anxious for our communities and especially the elderly and you know and you and I both work in cancer. We're scared for a lot of the people that sure. we work with, and we're scared for all sorts of people, and we're all scared for our own health. Yet I've also had this sense of this feels like the most important and dare I, I hate to say this word I can't think of a better word it's the most interesting thing I've dealt with in 
decades. And so I've got this mixed emotion where I Mm. almost feel a bit Mm. shitty because part of me feels excited to be helping in something so important, yet part of me feels a little bit guilty that, um, you know, that this, as you say, you know, I've got a job, I'm working Mm. hard, I'm not caught up at home um, being socially isolated. Have you had this too? It's so weird. Absolutely. And I think also because the hospitals are being so responsive and, um, you know, where we're working, um, some really, really great rapid things happening that we're putting bureaucracy aside and we're seeing change really happen. And that's that's a great thing to be part of. And you're going to come back yeah. to that in a couple of minutes more in our news segment. Hey, Panelbed, how's it impacting you, Matt? Really, really heavy duty. Yeah, it's um, big time. I certainly uh, don't pretend for a second it's like working uh, in a hospital but um, or, or any health services for that matter at the moment or cleaning in the health services mm, and, and those absolutely. sorts of stresses. But... Um, just seem to be absorbing stress from every direction mm. at the moment, whether it's um, colleagues who are losing their work left, right and centre, losing accommodation, um, they've got the isolation issues themselves. Um, students, um, both local and um, international, who are just you know, really, really struggling with a lot of mental health issues. Um, and the, just the stress of studying itself uh, for a lot of students is a big enough deal. But um, then the uh, tenuous nature of their accommodation, they've all lost their um, part-time employment, so their accommodation's um, up, up the proverbial. Um, and then you're dealing with the move to work from home, from teaching. So I've got about 250 students all up um, this semester in a range of courses. And um, trying to get them on board with the online platforms and, um, you know, besides the teaching side of it, just getting them um, au fait with and comfortable with that and um, helping them feel reassured and secure that they're getting attention. You know, mm. they've paid a lot of money. Mm. If you just want to boil it down to some, you know, pragmatics, they paid a huge amount of money and they expected yep. to be on campus, using on-campus facilities and services. And also on- it's incredibly important that their needs are being met because, you know, if we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of students across the country with nothing to do and their courses stopped, I don't think our social distancing would be going nearly as well. No. It's super important. Yeah. More, now more than ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'm just um, – attendance on campus is usually around about 80 to 90%, right, so students. And, and very rarely do you get your full class list turning up to an on-campus thing. Yeah. Now that we've moved online, attendance has dropped dramatically, right, really dramatic. It, I mean, I, I should say it varies a lot. There are some um, courses where students are more engaged online than others. But um, I suspect that a lot of that's less to do with because it's online than just – you know, just people trying to reorganise their lives and yep. and trying to um, trying to stay on top of a range of things. Just trying to stabilise the ground that they're standing on. And what yep. about yeah. the personal side? I certainly haven't had a night where I've slept the whole way through without waking up for at least an hour for about a month. Mm. What about you guys? Mm. Oh, it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm two. Mine's two thirty. I wake up at two thirty, and you know, normally about three thirty, I get back to sleep for a few hours. Well, what are, how, well yeah. I, I just think that it's a, this is where we start need to start thinking about how we're going to manage this because it's not going away anytime soon. And yep. so how do we actually normalise and actually start to get on top of life so we can get back to sleeping, to study and so well, on? Well, why don't we jump into your segment here, um, 
Cyber Sue, um, you're going to talk a little bit about how the hospitals are readying themselves. I, I, I certainly can, yeah. So um, I, get, I, I guess it's part of looking at how are we actually responding to this. And I thought I'd do a little bit of a focus on specifically hospitals. And I broke it down into four main kind of um, areas. And I think that, like Steve, uh, like Doolittle, we were talking before about that responsiveness and it's unprecedented the way that people are responding so rapidly um, and taking action and for example the first thing I'm going to talk about is the um, planning for COVID and that building of capacity. Yeah that's been phenomenal. It's been incredible and I mean we've we've heard about the um, the building of ICU beds and so on and there's a there's 450 beds around about in Victoria at the moment and there's been a commitment to increase that to 4,000 which wow. is incredible. And that's not just the beds. That's the, that, the remodelling of rooms, the remodelling of um, operating rooms. So that's to, hospital beds for people with COVID. That's right. And also we're increasing yeah. ICU capacity. And in, increasing the staffing capacity, yep. increasing the consumables, the equipment, ordering in something like um, uh, 55 million, no, 551 million gloves. Wow. No, I presume that's pairs of gloves. I hope so, because yeah. otherwise we're just going to have to do everything right-handed. <laughs> that's right. A hundred million masks, 14 and a half million gowns, yep. and of course all the ICU equipment. So. And the average, I mean, the ICU amazes me because, you know, I know that, see, general COVID beds aren't such a big deal. It's all about, you know, I mean, it's a huge deal, don't get yeah. me wrong. But ICU beds, if you've ever seen one, you know, each one of them looks like a little spaceship. Absolutely. You know, they've got yeah. so much equipment around them. And, you know, like I know at our hospital, one of the big ones, um, we're getting 100 extra, yes. um, which is, you know, and I forget how big our ICU was, but it would probably have been less than 100. And, you know, so they're massive increases that we're mm. getting. Mm. It's it's quite phenomenal how they're doing all this, where they're getting is. the equipment and how they're training the staff so quickly. It, it is sort of almost inspirational to watch it, it going. It, it, and that's, it, it, again, it part of this And weird... everyone working together yeah. so incredibly. And it's not and, – and thinking so far beyond all the possibilities. So, for example, you need to staff these um, ICU beds and the other – and the rest of the hospital. So 25,000 hotel rooms have been put aside for the healthcare workers and for their families so that they can be close by, yep. so that they can get to work and back um, at short notice and so on. Yeah, all the transport options, all the training yeah. up of new staff, getting the medical students, the nursing students, yeah. people who are semi-retired, people who work mm. in other areas that maybe aren't so needed now who, who are volunteering to redeploy themselves to come to the front line. Exactly Just right. so incredibly Impressive. Absolutely. What's your second area? Um, actually, the rapid process and redesign to actually prevent COVID. Yeah. And um, a lot of that's about the social distancing. So how are we actually doing that in hospitals? And, um, for example, reduce very simple things, but in a lift, no more than two people in a lift, so you're not squashed and no more than one or two visitors to the bed, um, limiting the visiting hours, very simple things, but having an impact. Can I just touch on yeah. one thing there? So about a year ago, we got a grant from, who was it? I may as well give them the plug because they're nice enough to give us a grant. Tour to Cure, you mm. know, a group that raised money around cancer, and they gave us $70,000 to build up our telehealth capacity um, to reach uh, rural and remote people with cancer. Mm. And, um, you know, and that went for a year and we increased, you know, it did well. We got all the systems in place. Is that because you had a telehealth manager looking after you as well? Probably. She was wonderful. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, 
you know, I suspect we've got about a quarter of our staff actively using telehealth. And through COVID, we're now up to comfortably, oh, 100%, everyone knows how to use it. Absolutely. Across the board, the, the staff are often at home seeing patients, let yep. alone the patient being at home. So we're getting beautiful social distancing. Mm. When you walk into mm. the office, instead of about, you know, normally in my office, there's around about 60 staff sitting mm. in the area. Now there's around about 25 at any one time at the most. Absolutely. And mostly it's about 15 when people are off on the wards and half the staff are at home on any given day, if not 60%, you know, mixing it up. And uh, it's yeah. been, it's and been should, amazing. And we should come back to the telehealth part of that, but yeah. with the staffing being split out, is that hospitals are splitting. So you haven't got all of the, let's say, for example, the breast care staff working in the one area. They're either working at home or they're alternating or they're working in different parts of the hospital. So if someone gets COVID, it's not going to go through the whole team. Yes. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. And, and all sorts of streamlining to, you know, have people... In various roles, especially we've got obviously a lot of staff who have chronic illnesses of various yeah. forms. You know, we had to get them home on day one, basically. And just the IT, you know, we've mm. shifted something like 2,000 people in our hospital have the ITs now been done to get them home and we'll have all 3,000 done within about another Are two we weeks. Are we allowed to do a call out to our specific IT department because they've been amazing? No, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> they it, have, they Because know who it's they are. every hospital. It's not just, you know, every hospital's doing this parallel yeah. all around the country. But, you know, know, yeah, yeah, you know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next point. Yeah, so um, and also the the government has pulled together a deal with the private and public hospitals so oh, that the, yeah. they're working together and I think that's really something so that you haven't got the public hospital in overdrive and the public sitting there and the private hospital sitting there half empty. And Yeah, and the yeah. two systems work well together but it is a little bit like Labor and Liberal. You know, they're, you know they've got very different, you know, they, they don't always work greatly together <laughs> and so just seeing all of the yeah. barriers um, you know, falling away at a time like this again, amazing. Yeah. It is. And of course, and anyone who hasn't been to hospital doesn't know that everyone gets screened as they go in for yep. in most most places, temperature screen. and So uh, as you walk symptoms. in now, yeah, you get questioned, have you got any symptoms? And you get your temperature taken. Yeah. And of course, if, if you have, you can't come in. Yeah, exactly. So no, that's good. Um, third point. Yep. That um, looking after and reducing the current patient population. So, for example, um, there's been changes to the way that pharmacists can now give flu vaccines and other vaccines. Um, so increasing the ability for pharmacists versus, uh, as well as GPs to give those vaccines so it's easier to get them. They don't have to be within a pharmacy or a GP practice. They can be in an outreach or, you know, out in the community. So there's been official changes to Should we do a little that. flu vaccine? Shout yeah. out at this point. Yeah. So Fluvax normally gets becomes available late Aprilish, and a lot of the programs start then. But heaps of places have got it already up and running. Yeah. I decided to jump in early because my hospital does it, but it's not for a couple of weeks yet. Yeah. So I just popped into my GP last week and got it out the way. Um, and the big issue being, you don't want to get flu and COVID at the same time. That would be particularly nasty. Yes. So you know, line up for your flu vaccine, um, but two meters apart, and uh, and get it ASAP. You know, just Google your local pharmacies, your local GPs, ring them, see if they've got it. And Head on down. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think th there's another thing that I've found a bit confusing in the news. I don't know if the two of you can add to this, but we've been told that we can't be out in our car unless necessary. We shouldn't be driving the kids around if they can't sleep. We shouldn't be driving them around in the car to get them to sleep. I've been a bit confused about why. And my understanding is it's to reduce the risk of trauma and accidents so that we keep, again, those hospital beds free. And is I don't it, know. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. And to be honest, yeah. I'm sort of... I'm it's, sort of reluctant to comment on yeah. government policy because it changes quickly yeah. and I think there's too much media confusion at the moment yeah. already. We've got some media outlets, you know, just bas basically 
confusing the whole issue mm. by getting confused themselves. So I think, you know, my advice is to stick to it. I carry around the little guidelines on my phone, um, you know, and they update it every couple of days. Yeah. And it's you can just look them up on the Victorian Government Health website and it's very straightforward. So, yeah, but I don't know why and I'd be reluctant yeah. to speculate. But the, but the bottom line is they're trying. we're trying to keep mm. people out of hospital. We're trying to reduce the risk of using beds. A, a, a few weeks ago there was an increase in elective surgery before this acute time to prevent beds being used now. So um, so what else yeah. have you got there? And then we come on to the staff wellbeing. Oh, yes, yeah, staff wellbeing. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's been impressive. Yeah, and um, of course, Doolittle, this is your area that you might like to talk talk about um that making sure that staff are in this for the long haul and yeah let me uh, maybe yeah. i can give you a quick summary because i sit on the staff wellbeing committee along with you know a lot of other people at my hospital and just to give you a summary so we have a staff wellbeing committee it's been going for about a month now it's been addressing what are the likely stresses and what we can do to improve and so it's about curating and getting the best information and putting it on a wellbeing page encouraging people to recognize stress encouraging people to deal with stress and it's basic stuff stay healthy eat well sleep well exercise um, try and turn off the 24-hour news cycle and relax your mind try and learn how to relax download something like smiling minds or the headspace app or progressive muscle relaxation contact um, all of your loved ones be use all the modern technologies despite the fact that we have to do it virtually rather than face to face it's all that then on top of that we've got all these things like good karma networks doing you know so that people can um, support each other in the time and deal with things like helping people out with care and transport and whatever we need to to get people in the hospitals going um we're sharing stuff with a lot of other hospitals safer care victoria are jumped on board and trying to curate all the best information so that all hospitals have it and every hospital doesn't have to reinvent their own wheel with respect to um good quality information and then um, of course trying to build up a bigger army of support people if others need it. In other words, nearly every hospital has an employee assistance program, but building up our access to psychologists and other people who might be able to support our staff if it gets very stressful. Yeah. Is I there any finer points? Because I'm, I'm aware we've got we've got yeah. Michael Schaefer waiting on the phone in a sec. And so uh, I, I want to move I, on. Can to I him. just throw one tiny thing into the yep. wellbeing? Is that um, I guess it's a call to um, check in on your colleagues and check in yeah. your colleagues that might not have the access to these things. The staff that might work in the kitchen or might be cleaning and don't have email, don't have access to the internet. And just check. There's, there can be a lot of fear amongst um, these staff um, and they are feeling vulnerable as well. So just ask, are you okay? And are you feeling okay? And is there stuff you don't know or you're worried about damn good point yeah and you know like i'm i'm always slightly reluctant at a time like this to reassure people in the public because the last thing we want people doing is lowering their vigilance with social isolation i'm particularly concerned because there's lots of dodgy reports that social isolation is working great it is working great but the data's too early yet. We're not doing enough testing to know if it's working well. So, um, but I do, you know, so I'm reluctant to be reassure people. But on the other hand, I reckon our hospitals are bloody well prepared. Yeah. I've never seen, you know, 30 years in the system, yeah. I've never seen us rearrange things so quickly. That's I've for never sure. seen everyone working together so well. I'm yeah. super, I mean, you can't be confident because we don't know how many infections we're going to get. But I, I, you know, it's gone as well as it could have for the last couple of months in terms of preparation. Mm. So, you know, I'm pretty sure everyone's going to get the medical care they need. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. 
On the line, we have Michael Schaefer. Now, Michael is an ex-lawyer turned comedian, and since changing careers about five years ago, he's hosted a TV comedy, had sellout shows and various comedy festivals, and you know, pretty much had a very successful com comedy career. This year, he was due to return to the Melbourne Comedy Festival with his show, Getting Better, based on his experience of surviving testicular cancer. But of course, all that changed with COVID-19. G'day, Michael. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on this morning. Oh, we're great. Can you hear us okay? I'm here. You're welcome. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, I'm just looking across at our trusty panel beater who's managing everything and he's giving me a hearty nod. Um, let's, I'll start the ball rolling with asking you, what has been the impact on, of COVID on the comedy scene? Well, I mean, it's completely, I think, kind of destroyed the comedy scene, really, because all gigs have been cancelled for the foreseeable future. So I think... If you are a live act who kind of relies on doing the festivals and doing the corporate events and doing live shows, then, yeah, it's, it's completely um, put your whole career on hold for a few months. Michael, that's Cyber Sue here. Um, that's, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a disaster. What are you doing about it? Great question. Well, I'm kind of unfortunate that I also, like, I do a lot of writing work, so... I'm out for the project on Channel 10, so um, I've still kind of got a lot of that work um, uh, over the course of the week. So that's helpful for me. But, yeah, I feel for a lot of comedians who don't necessarily have mm. you know, a writing job that, you know, continues. Yeah, if you're a live actor, you just have to go try to weather out the store. Hey, Michael, uh, panel beater here. Hey, great to have you with us. I'm really keen to hear this story about how the, the scene is reacting and, and you guys are keeping yourselves occupied. Just take a step back. Your, your show was called Getting Better, right? So you were talking about your experiences with cancer um, and turning that into uh, something that we could have a laugh at. Uh, can you give us a little bit about the, uh, the background story to that? Yeah, so that was um, that's kind of my experience when I was diagnosed with late stage cancer in 2017, and um, it took me about probably 18 months worth of you know chemotherapy and surgery to finally get into remission. But uh, probably when I was about six months into the whole experience, I started writing jokes about the whole thing and started turning it into stand-up material. Were you already writing comedy at that stage? You were, because I, I remember I read in one of your bios, you quit work about 2015. Yeah, so yeah well, I used to be a lawyer. Well, I mean, I never really gave them much of a shot, but uh, <laughs> well, I was technically a lawyer, but you would have not legal advice from me, that's for sure. <laughs> so you were already writing comedy then, but it took you about 18 months till you could face writing comedy about your cancer, or you just weren't well enough, you were too sick? Michael, was there, so you've just given us a time frame there. I'm wondering, was there much different about the sort of jokes you were writing about your experience at the very early days compared to where your, where your humour's taking you over that period of time? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, uh, I think kind of going through cancer probably gave me probably a darker sense of humour, which I think was kind of good for my comedy. I think it made it a bit more interesting just because I was talking about something that was like, really quite confronting for a lot of people and so it just kind of gave me a bit of a point of difference when I started talking about that stuff. 
considering I'd pretty much almost died from cancer. So, yeah, I've kind of just kind of maintained that just in my, even though I'm now remission and my health is great, I kind of still like talking about dark topics. It's kind of really fun for me now. I think that that darkness and that authority for you to talk about it because you've been through it yourself is such an important point. And I think that I wonder whether in the COVID environment where we're all having our own experiences in different ways of this, how do you, what do you, what's your kind of sense of the role of comedy um, in, in in this climate of COVID at the moment? Well, I think for me it's really important. I think it really is, you know, different people, different individual kind of attitudes towards it, and that's fine. My approach to everything, and this is my philosophy, is that, like, everything can be funny. So, for me, I kind of, wherever I have a difficulty in my life, you know, whether it was cancer or or now at the moment, kind of everything that were cancelled, I just kind of write jokes about it and try to laugh at it, and I've always believed that if you laugh at something, then it's very empowering. So, that was my approach to cancer, that's my approach and I'm really encouraged to hear that because I kind of have a personal grappling sometimes that if I'm sharing a joke about COVID, then it means I'm not taking it seriously. But I kind of, I kind of am encouraged by you that you can do both and you can have a joke, but you're still taking it as seriously as it as it as it warrants. So you're saying that it is appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think you can do both. I mean, just because you make a joke about a topic doesn't mean you don't think it's I mean, I, I've done, written lots of jokes and had lots of material about the Holocaust, for example, and I'm a Canadian, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and I think it's really important to talk about those things on stage because at the very least you raise awareness and can educate people. So I, I, just because you talk about something on stage and, or you make a joke about something doesn't mean it's not serious. I think sometimes the joke is the way of revealing the seriousness of it. Can I ask one more question on this topic and then we're going to end a little bit early. Uh, in fact, we're going to end a little bit early because the message we're getting left, right and centre is it's not coming out as well as we would have liked over um, the speakers outside. So I'm really sorry to cut it a bit short, Michael. We'll get you back as soon as we can in future weeks when um, when uh, we've got everything. Uh, we're having a few technological problems this morning when we've got everything sorted out. But thank you so much for joining us. No, that's not long. That's a issue. Um, thanks very much. We're going to say goodbye to you. And I'm just going to then just flick to my panel. I want to ask them a question related to what Michael was talking about. Um, and because, you know, I, I'm really interested in that point Michael was making about, um, you know, dark comedy and how he transitioned to dark comedy. Because in the hospital system, I guess we're notorious for gallows humour too. And we're always really anxious about our, people hearing our humour. And a couple of times over the years, I've cracked jokes and, you know, patients have heard it and I've been mortified and apologised because, you know, it's sort of like I, I don't know if it's inappropriate I don't know if it's just inappropriate and I'm an old dude and haven't adapted, but you know, we all do doctors, nurses, cleaners, everyone in the hospital we crack jokes about stuff to keep our days going and of course at the moment with COVID I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting upwards of 30 incredibly funny gags a day <laughs> about COVID yeah. and some of them you know, I'm genuinely pissing myself laughing and again, it's that issue mm. of I know people in other countries are dying and this yes. is going to be a terrible tragedy yeah. And it just feels sharper yes. than it did six months ago. Yeah. What's your take? Oh, I mean, I feel the same. And I think I, that's what I was saying. I, I grapple with who I might share my humour with. And um, I'm cautious because it's. I feel guilty about it because I think, does that mean I'm not taking it seriously? And I absolutely am. But I, I still see the funny side in all things. And I do try and bring it in my work as well as a nurse when appropriate. 
for me, I, I love it. I mean, that would be my headline. I, I reckon it's really super important, and, and I, um, it's been ages since I looked at this closely. But but the post nine eleven social psychology around it was about how bonding it was to make mm. jokes about these sorts of things, um, and I, I suspect uh, comedy is doing that across the board now. Um, for, when I'm listening to it, I think what I'm most interested in is what I perceive to be the motivation of the joke maker. Mm. If their motivation is to do that bonding, you know, let's share a joke about something that's pretty dark and um, a little bit out of our control, um, then great, let's let's jump on. If somebody's actually making a joke at somebody else's expense, um, well, A, I probably true. won't laugh in the first that's place, true. so therefore yeah. it's not comedy by definition. Um, and second of all, I probably, um, you know, just dismiss it. Yeah. yeah, so it's some, as someone said to me the other day, it's always appropriate until someone gets hurt. Um, so, but it, it's hard to know the lines sometimes, especially when you're immersed in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, um, you know, comedians are clever people um, always, in my experience, and they uncover, like Michael touched on it, they uncover sometimes a, a truth. And so there can be quite a value in comedy as well. I and in, in a sense, it's their job to dance around yeah. the line of appropriate versus inappropriate. Yeah. You know, and some of the best um, comedians, you know, are amazing at that. Um, you know, Ricky Gervais discusses this topic at length, and I love some of the incredible points he brings up around it. Um, but yeah, it is a tricky one. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And we're joined by one of our regulars who would be here, but we're all spread out and socially distanced across the whole place here. So uh, we have Dr. Spock at his home via a landline. So we're hoping this works nice and smoothly. Can you hear me, Dr. Spock? Sure can, Dr. Doolittle. I can hear you too. It's nice to hear your voice. How are you, buddy? Um, well, thanks, Doolittle. How are you? Ah, very good. How is COVID... Can, uh, uh, just starting off with the personal question. How's COVID affecting you? Well... I guess it's, it's affecting me the way it is everyone else. We're having to modify all the different things that I do um, work-wise. You know, I normally go to the gym and I normally do Pilates and having to do Pilates on my own at home and go for a run outside and try to keep away from others and, and uh, you know, cycling to work but uh, trying to keep distance from everyone on the cycling track and avoid all the extra people who are on the cycling track at the moment because they're out there doing their exercise too. So, uh, yeah, that those sorts of things, I guess. And work is just a lot about it. It's a lot of it is preparation and getting ready for, for when things really potentially hit, I guess. Wow. Because you, I mean, uh, you obviously work in, you're a paediatrician and you work in the children's hospital system. How are the children's hospitals in general going in their preparedness for this? Well, I guess it uh, it depends on um, the sort of setting. So there are some hospitals where, of course, uh, we see children and adults, and uh, and they're having to make certain decisions about the way they uh, use their resources. And and uh, particularly, there, there are some hospitals around Victoria already that have decided that uh, they are going to close down um, the children's ward and use it as an uh, you know COVID ward or for some other purpose. And uh, and the children are going to all have to be seen as outpatients or seen in a in a, a lo, another local health service. 
and, and the staff are all being redeployed to working in adult medicine. Um, in, in other places, uh, you know, the children's ward has been re relocated um, and uh, is sort of away in a clean area of the hospital, for example. And uh, so there are different things that are happening. The, the other thing that, that uh, you know, there's talk uh, of the possibility of where, where those children are going to be seen in mixed emergency departments and, and those mixed emergency departments will, you know, for example, um, in Melbourne, you might think of somewhere like Northern Hospital, they see children and adults usually, and, and I'm not saying that they're going to do this, but the possibility would be that they'd see adults only and the children would all go to another service, for example, the Children's Hospital, um, which would just see see a lot more children and, and to take the load off the adult hospitals, which will be potentially dealing with a number of COVID patients. Other, a, oh, sorry. You go ahead, Cyber Sue. Okay. Um, hello, Dr. Spock. Cyber Sue, nice to speak to you. Yeah, hi, Cyber Sue. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because um, it's great to hear there's a lot of work going on in the children's hospitals because um, there's a lot of talk that actually children aren't really affected by COVID and yet obviously it's affecting the way you plan your services. Um, is it true um, that kids aren't getting as sick from COVID as adults? Well, it certainly appears to be the case. I mean, as I'm sure you're all aware and our listeners are aware, that there's a lot we, we still really don't know. We're learning uh, as information comes from China and Korea and the States. Um, but um, we're not entirely certain how many children are being infected um, because we're sort of, there's not the testing that's being done all over the place. Um, you know, it was a widespread thing. It's mainly focusing on those with symptoms. But it does seem that children aren't as affected, that they're not as, uh, as symptomatic. Um, and uh, the other thing is, I mean, there's, but there had been a concern early on, children are often the source of spread of viruses. I mean, as we, anyone who's got children or grandchildren knows that kids come home from childcare and school with snotty noses, and they're often the ones that give adults the cold. Um, but in this case, it doesn't seem that that's the case. It seems that children aren't the sort of super spreaders that they are with some other viruses. So kids don't seem to be as a as affected and they uh, are most likely not spreading the virus around as much as we thought at the, fir at the first case might have been the case. Dr Spock, I'm wondering, um, like, uh, like most of us in one way or another, we're kind of making it up as we go along, so to speak. You know, we're, we're dealing, most of us are dealing with something like this for the very first time. Um, I'm wondering, where do you see the big uh, information gaps at the moment, at this stage of things? And also, has there been anything that surprised you in terms of your preparedness, you know, maybe where you have found a capacity that you may not have otherwise expected to um, be ready to respond? Yeah, so look, I, I think one of the, the big gaps is in is understanding how many people out there are actually infected um, without being uh, infected without being affected. Uh, it's sort of asymptomatic people, and and um, and that that is a, a difficult one because you know one of the big uh, and I'm sure everyone's reading about herd immunity and how you know we need to wait um, really until there's a vaccine until we have enough people in the community who've been infected about 60 percent to be confident or more confident that uh, there won't be as much serious disease around. That's what's happened with vaccination of various things in the past. But we don't, at the moment, we're not blood, doing blood tests to see who's been exposed out there in the community. And so therefore we don't know how many people are infected. And we, at the moment, we're going to have to continue with the, the current sort of physical distancing we're doing until we learn more about that. So I think that's one of the big gaps. Um, 
I guess, um, you know, we've, we've all uh, learned some of the things that we've learned and how we're becoming more agile um, is just, uh, you know, particularly around the number of things that we can do without um, having to be, uh, you know, physically close to one another. And, of course, with all of us, you know, meetings and even our, the clinical care that we're giving, um, a lot of it is being done um, at a distance and, uh, and that's, you know, that nothing can beat um, talking face-to-face with the, with patients and examining them. But uh, yeah, there's a lot we can do without having to be um, physically close. So just as an extension of that, I'm, I'm really curious um, about things that you might find yourself doing now procedurally, administratively, and, and just in um, patient care terms that you're doing now that you may not have been doing, but you think you probably will keep doing once, uh, you know, because you found either it's, it's a good way of doing things or, or you've learned something. Yeah, look, that's a really good question. So procedurally, I think that, um, you know, with, with children, it is not so practicable to um, put on uh, gloves and gowns and, and ma- masks and things for every time we see a child with a, a cold or a runny nose. In the, in the, anyone who sees children in general practice or in, a, in an emergency department or on the wards uh, knows that, you know, m- many of the kids we see have got viral illnesses. And, and we have never, to be frank, been that good at infection control practices around children with just viral infections. And that perhaps is one of the reasons that a lot of less severe viral infections do spread around quite a bit as we don't take them as seriously. And I think that moving forward, we most likely will take some of those things a lot more seriously and realise that we've been able to, you know, at the moment, we're not, not only are we not seeing much COVID in kids, very little uh, so far, but we're seeing fewer kids with a number of uh, respiratory viral illnesses than we than we usually do, and that's most likely because everyone's being more careful. So that's perhaps a good thing that will, um, without being crazy about it, will continue on into the future. I guess administratively, um, you know, I, I'm involved in a number of meetings with people around the country and, and internationally, and and particularly some of the the meetings of the of the College of Pediatrics that we have. We often all fly into Sydney, where the college is housed, from Australia and New Zealand costing thousands and thousands of dollars um, to make decisions about things and we've found that we're very effectively able to do those things uh, using Zoom, saving an enormous amount of time and, and money. So I think... But Dr Spock, that raises serious concerns for your frequent fly status. I'm, I'm really getting quite worried for you. <laughs> As am I and, and uh, we will have to sort of have a few um, uh, you know, unnecessary uh, meetings going on uh, from time to time but yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it all seriously, I think it is, it's made us realise that uh, we can be very effective using, um, you know, things like uh, Zoom and uh, WebEx and various other things that are, everyone's using at the moment. Um, I think there's much... It, it strikes me that there's really good communication between the executives uh, of hospitals, the well, governments, if we strike right at the top, you know, the government and, and, and the, the health departments and, uh, and then executives in hospitals and clinicians. There's, there seems to be much better communication, although some people have been complaining that oh, there's mixed messages and everything else. I think, actually, the messaging has been great from the top down and, and it's been clear and it's been frequent. 
Um, and, and, I, and I think that's a, a great thing, and hopefully that will continue into the future. Yeah, I agree with you there, Spocky. Hey, Spocky, I've just given you a new nickname. <laughs> hey, Spocky, while well, we've got you on the blower, because I know we've got a million listeners out there, more, maybe more with children, um, and I know you also wrote, have been writing the guidelines about how to manage COVID in kids. Um, are there any tips for parents whose kids might get COVID about how what they should do, or is it just like managing the flu? Is it rest, Panadol fluids? Is there anything different they should be doing if they think their kids have COVID as distinct from a cold or flu? Well, look, I think um, it, it probably is much the same. I suppose that the, the thing about this virus that we're, where everyone's obviously become aware of is that it does seem to cause... Um, it's highly transmissible, probably more so than the flu, and um, so it can spread around... It seems to, to spread around more easily, and it does cause severe disease um, in, obviously, the elderly and those who, who are immunocompromised and so on. So I guess um, in terms of the child themselves, the management is much the same as any other virus, and the, the likelihood is the child is not be- going to become terribly unwell, any more so than with other viruses. But I guess in terms of being careful around... I, I suspect there are many parents who, if their child's got a bit of a runny nose, if they stayed away from their their parents and their grandparents whenever that was the case they'd hardly ever see them but at this stage if their child had COVID or suspected COVID it would be very unwise to go anywhere near an, an elderly relative or anyone who's got some other problem with their immune system and so on. That's great Spocky got the name. Now, um, quick question for you. Um, we were talking before about the well-being and stress among um, staff in hospitals and, um, and in the healthcare system. What's it been like in your hospital, the stress levels amongst staff? Look, there's certainly um, it's a mixed bag. I think it, it, there's certainly heightened levels of anxiety amongst everyone, yeah. and uh, and I, I think and with with uh, healthcare workers, and you've probably been discussing this. I'm sorry, I was out for a run, so I didn't hear what you're discussing earlier. Um, I. I suspect that many healthcare workers are worried about themselves. They're worried about, and, and that's what I'm saying, they're worried about their, um, their, their families and going, take, potentially taking the virus home to their families, and that's something I'm hearing a lot amongst our staff. Um, and and it, they're, they're also very worried um, about, and, and in my hospital, and I'm, quite, I'm involved with the, the trainees, the paediatric trainees, and they're pretty worried about their training, how this is going to affect their, their training now and into the future, how much education they're, they're getting at the moment, uh, the fact that, the, that a lot of the training things that were done face-to-face, well, all the face-to-face training has been suspended for the time being and, um, and we're trying to deliver it by video or um, by, uh, you know, Zoom and, and so on, but it's, it, that's, that's difficult. So they're very worried about, about that. Um, if for the paediatricians, uh, the exams this year have been cancelled and, and that's a source of great concern to a number of them. And so they're worried about well, how things are going currently and then how things are going to go in, into the future because it may affect, you know, uh, there's likely to be an effect for uh, at least another year in terms of their training and their, their progression and, and so on. And so, and we're making every effort to, to um, be flexible about all that sort of stuff, but it's a source of anxiety to them. Yeah, it sounds... Um, 
quite understandable. Hey, Spocky, thanks for coming back for your run and joining us. Um, it's been great to have your insights. Sorry you can't be in the studio with us because normally you'd buy me a cup of coffee, obviously, being a paediatrician, you're more wealthy than me, a psychiatrist. Um, so, uh, But it's great to have you. Um, we'll see you again very soon. Um, cheers, mate. No worries. Thanks a lot, Doolittle. Okay, Hi. we'll speak to you soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, Cyber Sue, what's the week hold in store for you? Well, do a little... I've got um, an hour and a half a day travel time being saved. I've got no excuse but to establish my exercise routine this week. Oh, it's so hard. I just bought, you know, one of those wind trainers home, you know, put on your back wheel of your bike so I can cycle. Uh, it's, it's hard to exercise it in is. the house. It is. I mean, there's still excuses for why I shouldn't do it, but well, I have got no excuses. I reckon I've got three <laughs> COVID kilograms, you know, kilograms that I've added yeah. because of social isolation. What about you, Panel Veda? How does your week look? Uh, it looks horrible, <laughs> like full on. It'll be... Um well, this week was about 65 hours. I reckon this week coming um, will be probably something similar. So it's a combination of, you know, online uh, meetings, online teaching, and then there's all the stuff that comes at you left, right and centre. Um, and, and which, you know, it, it, that's fine. That's the job. But everything also takes twice as long it does. Um, at, at home, you know, whether it be a dodgy internet connection or it's coordinating times to be on the phone or on the, on the online sessions. Um, um, and um, and my place isn't really set up at the moment for on for at home working. I'm just working off a, a laptop and that sort of thing. So there's that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you know, it means I'll um, means I'll uh, put the kettle on more often. Hey, have a good week, guys, and stay safe and stay well. And that goes for everyone out there in our listening community and, of course, everyone else as well. Stay isolated, stay safe. Can we do a couple of quick thank yous? Michael Schaefer, um, comedian, check out his website. I linked it on our Facebook page. It's got a whole lot of good stuff, including you can download his last year's show, 50-50. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.